Thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast from Redeeming Hope. We exist as a family of faith that follows Jesus and helps others find him by living all of life as missionaries of hope. If you want more information about our church or would like to support our ministry, go to our website at redeeminghope.org. Please enjoy this sermon podcast. Greetings, Redeeming Hope family. It's great to be here with you. Uh, through the internet and all those who are watching from different places. We're beginning a series on the book of Ephesians, and we're titling the series, In Him. And today we're going to start right at the beginning, Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, and the title of my message is, The Apostle of Grace. Of course, I'm referring to Paul the Apostle. Whenever I look at the book of Ephesians, I, I remember my time in Turkey. I've been to this city, and I remember actually being in tears as I read the account of Paul and his time with the believers in Ephesus, specifically the time when he said goodbye to them and, and he said, this is the last time I'm going to see you, and then he sailed off. And I was actually in that very spot where he likely met with them and had that moment. And I just remember being so moved and it just kind of came alive to me as I visited this city uh, of Ephesus in Turkey. It was on the west coast of modern-day Turkey. It would have been a common stop for anyone traveling west on their way to Greece or to Rome. It was, as far as ancient times are concerned, a beautiful coastal city on the shores of the Aegean Sea that fed into the massive Mediterranean Sea. It had an amphitheater that seated 50,000 people that was marked by the decor representing the worship of their idol, Artemis. And I've, I've been in that amphitheater too, and it's, it's pretty stunning. We had somebody stand right in the front of it and, and just speak and you know, in, in a common tone, and I could hear him all the way in the back. It's, it's really uh, f- fantastic, and, and uh, you know, as far as architecture and, and, uh, and even the engineering of it, it was just really cool to experience. While Paul was in prison from 60 to 61 AD, his first of two imprisonments, he wrote a letter to the church here in Ephesus that he himself had founded, a church that was like family to him. Remember, Paul was single, and And his family was the church, and in a very real way, that was everything to him. Now, many of Paul's letters were responses to false teaching, false teachers that had come into the different churches, or problems that developed in certain churches like 1 and 2 Corinthians. But Ephesians is very different. Ephesians reads like a sermon. It's all gospel, and it deals with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian, both in faith and in practice. Where other letters had a more personal touch, this is one of his most formal letters as he rehearses gospel truths that construct gospel thinking in the heart and mind of a believer. And that's what we want here at Redeeming Hope, people who think gospel. We want theologically smart, strong, encouraged followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because encouraged people are effective people. Encouraged churches are evangelistic churches. So today, as we start this book, we're just going to look at the first two verses, and it begins like this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this apostle of grace that in some ways we can 
all trace our spiritual heritage and lineage spiritually to uh, this man as he went and preached the gospel, the gospel of grace, Lord, to the Gentile world. And, and throughout the generations, it came to us. And Lord, now might it come to us again. May it cause our hearts to explode with zeal and worship and passion and gratitude for you. And Lord, may it flow through us to a lost and dying world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to break this text down and this message down into two parts, the messenger and the message. Let's look at the messenger, Paul, the apostle, often called the apostle of grace, which is the title of this message, the apostle of grace. The word apostle, apostoles in Greek, means a messenger, one sent on a mission, one commissioned by another to represent him in some way, especially a man sent out by Jesus Christ himself to preach the gospel. Now to Paul, certainly all of those things apply. Paul was a messenger sent by Jesus to proclaim grace to the world. Yet Paul, as we know, did not always believe in the message of grace. Matter of fact, at one point, he was an enemy of the message of grace. It repulsed him. It angered him. He was once called Saul, and he was an elite religious leader in Jerusalem, trained by a man named Gamaliel, a man you might compare in, modern, in the modern day to a Harvard professor. But with all Paul's knowledge and his remarkable devotion to religion, he failed to see Jesus Christ as a Messiah or to grasp the Christian message of grace. He believed one was saved by rigid obedience to Jewish law. And he believed it so strongly that when Christians came along and began to preach the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, he persecuted them, including standing by approving of Christians being stoned to death. But one day on the road to Damascus, with authority, on his way with authority from the religious elite in Jerusalem to continue to persecute more Christians, a blinding light from heaven knocked him down on the road, blinded his eyes, and a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He answered the voice, who are you, Lord? Can you imagine? He had concluded in that moment, whoever just did this to me, whoever's talking to me right now, must be the Lord. Can you imagine what he felt in his heart when the voice said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The whole course of his life had been against Christ. And now he's realizing in just a moment that this one he's been persecuting is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And his message is true and good and right. From that day on, he followed Jesus and began to learn what grace meant. God gave him back his sight and he went away for several years to a place called Arabia where the Holy Spirit taught him more of the gospel. He later says in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. And he says in Galatians 1.12, I did not receive my gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And with that revelation, with that authority, he began to preach the gospel to the world. Now, speaking of his old life and the way he used to think and the way he used to believe, he says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9. He says, I, might, I myself might have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And in context, one of the things he was dealing with was people who, you, who 
think like he used to think, who think we're saved by good works, who think we're saved by zealous obedience to Jewish law. And now he's, he's reciting his spiritual resume of sorts, but listen to what he says about his spiritual resume, that thing that he might have trusted in to give him righteousness before God. Watch how he discards it and he seeks righteousness outside of his own moral heroics and his spiritual resume. He says, if anyone else thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God, that depends on faith. In other words, I don't seek righteousness in my works anymore. I don't seek it in my pedigree or my, you know, the fact that I was trained under Gamaliel or you know, my spiritual moral heroics or my zealous obedience to Jewish law. I seek it in Christ's work and not my own. He'd seen the light. He'd seen the light, literally on the road to Damascus and spiritually in the gospel that God does not accept a man on the basis of zealous obedience to his law. That we're too sinful to ever hope that we could balance the scales. That we're accepted on the basis of grace. And grace is unearned love, undeserved kindness from God. We're accepted by believing in the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross to pay the sin debt that we all owed. And he paid it with his own shed blood that we are saved in spite of us, not because of us. And Paul began to preach this everywhere. God called him to travel outside of Israel to the Gentile world and began to preach the gospel all over the known world. He established churches everywhere he went, including Ephesus. And Paul was so radically converted to the message of grace that here he is now as he's writing this book from a prison cell. He's now in prison for this message. Paul had been in Ephesus three times. Acts 18 tells us he had a brief visit there, and it was the first time he preached there. Then we read in Acts 19 that he returned and stayed three and a half years, and a riot happened in the city when Demetrius the silversmith's business, a man who manufactured idols and trinkets for the worship of Artemis, was negatively affected. In other words, there was... There was so much revival happening in the city, so many people turning to Christ that this guy's losing business. He caused this riot. It ended up in the amphitheater that, that I told you I, I visited. And uh, that happened in Acts 19. Acts 20 tells us the story of his final, his final visit there with the elders before he sailed off to his, his eventual execution. Later on, he writes the book of Ephesians from prison, and a few years later, in his second imprisonment, he's martyred. And I should mention, too, that this church is mentioned again after Paul's life. In Revelation 2, 1 through 7, 30 years after his death, the church of Ephesus receives a message from Jesus through Christ's disciple John, and Paul is gone by that time. 
Now, let's circle back to Paul's final visit to Ephesus. So, this is it. He, he, he's going to have one more moment with the elders, the leaders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus. He gathers them, and he has this final you know, leadership meeting with them. He wants to give them their final instructions. What does he say? What do you think he might say? You know, in that situation, this apostle, this founder of this church, this father of this church, what do you think he might say to them in his final meeting with them? You might think he'd say, hey, you, you better pray a lot. Now, prayer is important, but he didn't say that. He might say, hey, make sure you're doing evangelism. Make sure you're fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, that's important. He didn't say that. You think he might say, hey, make sure that you have unity. At all costs, have unity. Unity is wonderful and good and important, but he didn't say that. Thankfully, we actually get to be a fly on the wall as the scriptures publish this meeting that he had with the elders. We get to listen in to what he said to them. Listen to what he said. And it's a good chunk of scripture. Uh, you know, I, it's so awesome. I just wanted you to hear it because we get to hear what he said to the elders in his final visit. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account of my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only that I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, and will draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Verse 36, when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, the word he had spoken that he, they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. First of all, Paul tells us what he meant when he used the word gospel. You know, we use the word gospel a lot here. You hear the, the word gospel a lot in, in different churches. What did Paul mean? Well, he tells us what he meant in verse 24, and he says it again in verse 32. He says, I testified of the gospel of the grace of God. And in verse 32, he calls it the word of his grace. 
Whenever Paul used the word gospel, he was referring to the message of the word of God's grace. And over and over again in this text, in this meeting with the elders of Ephesus, he shows a deep concern for the preservation and purity of his message, the gospel of grace, fearing that someone will come after he leaves and pervert it, that false teachers will deceive believers away from it, that legalists will add to faith in Christ as necessary for salvation. Think about it. He could have said anything, but he was singularly focused on the word of grace and the gospel of God's grace and its preservation. Why? Here's why. It's because the gospel of God's grace is the heart of the church. Now, if you lose your eye, you'll live. I could lose an arm and live. I could lose a lot of different parts of my body and live. But if you lose your heart, if I lose my heart, I die. The gospel of God's grace is the heart of the church. And Paul knew that. So he was doing heart surgery. He was making sure the heart was going to be protected after he left. False gospels hurt people. That's why we're so strong on preaching and protecting the true gospel here at Redeeming Hope. So that's the story of the apostle of grace and his, what led to his eventual execution at the hand of the Romans. But what was his message? Well, we, we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to I dig into that a little more as we close out the second part of this message. And what we see is as this book begins, he gets right to the message. He can't help it. It's so much a part of him. It just oozes out of him. Again, back to our text today. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're going to see is that Paul's message, the gospel message that Paul gave offered four things, a new object of faith, a new identity, a new position, and a new power. Let's look at this, a new object of faith. In these two verses, he says Jesus Christ three times. He's immediately shifting the eyes of the heart to Christ, not self, to Jesus. He's immediately offering worship to Jesus. That it's about him. It's not about you or me. It wasn't about Paul, his religious fervor, our religious fervor, his moral resume or our moral resume. It's about Jesus. And once we see him, only when we see him do we truly see ourselves. And he says, to the saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, without understanding grace, when we hear a word like faithful or faithfulness, we tend to focus on faithfulness versus faith when we see things like that. In other words, we say, okay, there it is, to the faithful in Christ Jesus, I better cowboy up and be faithful. But that puts the focus back on me. The word faithful literally means full of faith. It means full of belief. So the phrase means full of faith in Christ Jesus, to the full of faith in Christ Jesus. If we focus on our faithfulness alone, we sometimes become self-focused and lose sight of the object of our faith. And we, we almost can develop like a faith in faith, not faith in the object of our faith. And biblical faith is more about the object of our faith than the faith itself. Now, a few years back, 
my son Jack saved up for a remote control plane. He was so excited about it. You know, he saved his nickels and his dimes, and you know, he, he found just the right thing he wanted on you know, Amazon, and he ordered it. And he got the plane, and he knew that he couldn't fly that thing alone, right? So he, he needed his dad to come through. And he, he trusted me to be the pilot of his new RC plane. He had faith in me, but unfortunately, the object of his faith did not come through. His faith was uh, misplaced. The object of his faith, me in this case, did not deliver. Because what happened was, I'm like, all right, let's, let's learn how to fly this plane. We took it out in the garage. We had this cement floor, and we used that as a runway. I said, I think we can use that as a runway. It can take off into our yard. And in fact, it did. <laughs> but I got the plane up in the air, and, and I didn't realize how windy it was that day. I mean, I didn't think it was that windy. But once you got up, like, you know, 50 feet, a gust of wind took that plane, and it just, like, kept going up and up and up until it was a speck in the sky. And he and I are literally running you know, through the yards of our neighbors, running, and Jack is, he's already just, he's just hysterical. You know, he's, he's crying, he's forlorn, he's upset, because he knows this thing is not going well. And the plane just went up, 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 a little speck in the sky, and it went, like, somewhere over this wheat field that was, like, you know, 10 square miles of wheat. And it, it, it got so small, and the wind took it so high, we lost sight of it. We looked for hours, and then the days that followed, we, we, we kind of blocked off the field and looked in different sections of the field. We never found that plane. Now, again, let's, let's talk about the lesson of that. Jack had faith, right? He had faith in the pilot, but the object of his faith, the one he was trusting in, didn't come through. Now, listen, God, thankfully, is not like me. God knows how to fly your plane. God knows how to save you. The object of your faith, the one in whom you're trusting in, will come through. As, so it's not just about having faith. We hear that all the time in our call. Have faith. Have, well, have faith in what? Have faith in Jesus Christ. Have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And have faith in God working through his son. He knows how to fly our plane. He knows how to save us. If we're going to think of the word faithful in the traditional sense that you're trustworthy, consistent, and loyal, let's talk about it from that angle. Faithful or loyal to what? This text says faithful to Christ Jesus. So that means you're faithful to obey Jesus and his teaching. And here's his teaching. Jesus taught in John 3 that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him shall be saved. So what does it mean to be faithful to Jesus Christ and his teaching? It means we obey his command to believe in him. He gives us strength to believe that we're too weak to believe as we ought. We're too sinful to earn God's favor. We're too incompetent to lead our own lives. We're too bungling to fly our own plane. So when Paul says faithful in Christ Jesus, it means two things. Number one, that we're full of faith. We're full of belief. We're faithful, full of faith in the cross, that we're all in on the grace of God. Second, it means we're loyal to him by consistently obeying Jesus and his commandment, especially his commandment to believe. His commandment is that we place all our hope in the work of Jesus on the cross to save us and redeem us from the curse of the fall. So what it really means is that we're loyal to the gospel. 
the gospel of grace. We are faithful to the belief that our faithfulness can't save us. A little bit of a paradox there. We're loyal to the one who taught us that our loyalty will never be pure enough to qualify us for the kingdom of God. So we have to, like Paul, depend not on our righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ. So from either angle, our faith or our faithfulness, the final object of faith is not our faithfulness, but the grace of God. And so we receive this new object of faith, not our obedience to the law, but our belief in Christ's obedience to the law, our belief in, our belief in Jesus and his work. The second thing Paul's gospel, uh, the gospel of grace gives us, is a new identity. Let's read it again. But with, maybe let's insert some of these, the expanded definition of what it means to be a saint. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the people special to the Lord, sacred and holy, to people in Ephesus that are just like Jesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller says this about this idea of identity in the gospel. There's no more characteristic theme of modern Western culture than that of identity. Talk is incessant about gender identity, racial identity, national identity, self-esteem and personal identity. The Bible, however, speaks about Christians getting a new name in Christ the more ancient way of talking about a change in identity. In ancient times, a person's identity and self-worth largely rested on one's family. So if you had a lot of children, it meant that you were esteemed and respected in society. But God says that believers receive a name that is, quote, better than that of sons and daughters, for it is an everlasting name that will not be cut off. That's from Isaiah 56, 5. In other words, the Lord gives us an identity not based ultimately in family or race, in money or success. It is not like any other kind of identity in the world. And the New Testament tells us it comes to us through faith in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are born again and adopted into God's family. We have God's name put on us and so receive the praise and applause from God, like it says in Romans 2. This being in Christ means that now no other feature, not your education, vocation, gender, race, or any other human condition or achievement defines you or grounds your worth and identity as does your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It also creates a deep bond and tie to all other believers regardless of their worldly status, gender, race, or nationality. Don't you see? The gospel is the answer for racism because the gospel says your primary, your primary identity is in Christ, not my race or my ethnicity. This is the answer for homosexuals and transgenders. The gospel says my primary identity is in Christ, not my sexuality. This is the answer for political division. The gospel says my primary identity is in Christ, not my political party. I'm a child of God first, everything else second. The gospel speaks to us and it changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes our identity. It changes the conversation. And it reminds me when I was in India, in Hyderabad, India, we stayed in a missionary complex. And right next to the missionary complex was a small town that had not always been a town, but it was a town made up of what were historically this gypsy tribe. But these gypsies had, been, had come through that area years before and the pastor of uh, that that area where this missionary complex was, um, heard that they were coming through and he ran over to this group of people and he said, I want to talk to you. He shared the gospel with them and then he, says, he said this to them, you are not gypsies. It's like, what? That's exactly what they are and that's what they've been for generations. He literally, through the gospel, challenged their identity in a moment. 
they believed in Christ and it radically rewired their whole identity in a moment that what had been their identity for generations and their, their lifestyle and their, their culture for generations was radically altered in a moment because he challenged their identity through the gospel. They believed in Jesus and this whole new town was started and this whole church was started because this pastor challenged their identity because that's what the gospel does. It changes the conversation. And it causes us to think differently about ourselves. That's what it means to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The gospel gives us a new position. So we receive a new object of faith, a new identity, and a new position. And this is where we get the phrase, in him, which is the title of this whole series, or in Christ. Right away, Paul uses his favorite phrase, in Christ Jesus. He'll use that term almost 15 times before the end of Ephesians chapter 1. It was a hallmark phrase of Paul's teaching. This phrase is used 75 times in the New Testament and 73 of them are from Paul, the apostle of grace. This means that Paul taught the gospel from position, not performance. That salvation is based on where you are positioned, not how well you perform. And we've heard this idea that that's what every other religion is in the world. It's what you do for God. And here comes the Christian gospel of grace that says, no, 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 no. It's not about what you do for God. It's about what he's done for you. And are you positioned in him? The Bible says we're hidden in Christ. I love that idea. That where God used to see me and my whole record and he'd see my failures and he'd see my shortcomings, now I'm hidden in Christ. And when God sees me, he sees his son Some theologians call this idea federal headship. And when you understand this idea, it's really powerful. Federal headship says, as the head, so am I. Federal headship gives us what's called federal righteousness. And think about it in terms of our federal government. If our nation is under attack, you're under attack. If our nation is an ally of England, you're an American, you're an ally of England. If a terrorist organization hates America, they hate you. In some ways, our safety and well-being in a worldwide sense are attached to our federal government. Think about World War II. The whole German nation suffered because Hitler came to power. Think about the Chronicles of Narnia series. In Narnia, the whole land grieved when the white witch ruled. Likewise, Israel rejoiced and was blessed when King David came to the throne. Many great epic series are about the rise of rightful kings to power so that people can be free and blessed from darkness and evil. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. In the same way, you are linked to King Jesus. We are in him. In him you have federal righteousness. You're hidden in him. You have his righteousness before the Father. You're now part of a spiritual nation governed by King Jesus. As he is, so are we. If he is loved, you are loved. If he is accepted by the Father and your faith is in him and you're in him and hidden in him, you are accepted by the Father. We have a new position when we believe in Christ. The Bible says that we're united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as he is, so shall we be. This is the great hope of the church, the great hope of our future, the great hope of the resurrection. The Bible also calls Jesus the second Adam and teaches that until you're under this second Adam, you're under the first Adam. The first Adam made us slaves to sin and death. The second Adam, Jesus, brings forgiveness and life. 
And where under the first Adam, no, no matter how many good deeds you did, you couldn't undo our sin, under the second Adam, Jesus Christ, no matter how much you, you've sinned, you can't undo his righteousness. Romans 15, 17 through 19. Four, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, speaking of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus, the many will be made righteous. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's really no neutrality. Those are the only two places you could be positioned spiritually in this world. So that's my question to you. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you positioned by faith to be hidden in Christ? Or are you still in Adam depending on your own morality, your own works, your own religious fervor, your own merits, your own spiritual or moral accomplishments. We have this new position in Christ. That's Paul's gospel. That's the gospel of grace. We're saved by position, not by performance. And finally, we have this new power. Let's circle back to verse one again. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So I wanna turn that into a question toward you. What are you by the will of God? There's grace for whatever you're called to do and be by the will of God. And I remember how this verse spoke to me. This very verse spoke to me when I was in the wilderness. And maybe sometime I'll share my whole testimony. But back in 2001 and 2002, I stepped back from ministry. I was spiritually burned out, depressed, and struggling with a terrible anxiety, anxiety disorder. And my healing didn't go according to my timetable. So what do you do when you feel inadequate for ministry? incapable of functioning in the role you seem to have, even the most fundamental roles for me, even struggling to be functional as a person, a husband, a father. What do you do when you're in that situation? Struggling even to fulfill your daily responsibilities of being a father a, uh, or a mother, a husband or a wife. He said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Grace is not just unmerited favor in a sense where it, it saves you and brings you into the kingdom. It is that. But actually, the, the definition of grace is far more exhaustive and expansive throughout the New Testament. Grace is unmerited favor to save you, but grace is also unmerited power to sanctify you and empower you to do ministry like Jesus, to empower you to do the will of God for your life. I like to refer to grace, one way to refer to it is power beyond my ability. So anytime you see the word grace in the Bible, uh, you can insert that phrase. Listen to how Paul referred to his ministry. This is not salvation he's talking about. This is his ministry. Listen to how he referred to that in Ephesians 3. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So Paul referred to even his ministry and the things he did for God, he referred to that as grace. So that gives you a wider definition of grace, doesn't it? It's not just the door in, it's everything. It's the, it's the foundation, it's the walls, it's the roof. Everything we are and do and become is by the grace of God. So insert that phrase, power beyond my ability in that verse. 
Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's power beyond my ability, which was given to me according to the working of his grace. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We have this new uh, identity. We have this new position. We have this, this new power. We have this new object of our faith. So how do we apply this this message as we consider this apostle of grace and his message? How do we apply it? Well, the first thing, the first way I want to apply it is just to simply ask you, are you saved? Have you, as Pastor Josh says often, have you put a stake in the ground and had that moment where you've placed faith in Jesus Christ and you've identified him as Lord and Savior of your life? Have you obeyed the command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed this message of this apostle of grace. If you haven't, why haven't you? Why haven't you gone all in on Jesus when he went all in on us? Can you see his beauty today? Can you see his glory? Can you see his power? Can you see the life in this message? And he said, only believe, believe. Place your faith in him. Make him the object of your faith. Don't trust in the wrong pilot. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the philosophies or or the vain things of this world. Trust in the Lord Jesus who saved us on the cross and resurrected from the dead. A picture of our future and we'll be with him. The second way that we can apply this is, is this. I want to encourage you to take steps of faith toward and in your calling. It's so easy to get weary, it's so easy to get depressed, it's so easy to feel inadequate, and to allow those things to hinder our effectiveness in the things God's called us to do in the church and in the home and in the community. And I wanna encourage you, some of you are called to be fathers, some mothers, some, some uh, husbands, some wives, some captains of an athletic team, some managers of a business, some of you are students with a massive academic load, Others are employees with a lot of weight on your shoulders. Do you feel inadequate? Do you feel weak? Do you wake up in the morning and go, oh no, another day? Or how could I do this? I I don't have what it takes to be a father. I don't know how to lead my home. I I don't know how to invest in my children. I don't know how to make disciples in my home. Maybe, Maybe you're just weighed down and burdened down by these things and discouraged. I want to point you to the grace of God, this power that comes through the Holy Spirit as we believe in the Lord Jesus and remind you that what God's will demands for your life he also provides. Paul was called to be an apostle by the will of God. No matter, you can insert whatever you're called to be. It's by the will of God and he will empower you and give you grace and spiritual power by his Holy Spirit to accomplish everything that is in his will for your life. So let's turn our attention to him. Let's turn our eyes away from ourselves like Paul immediately turns our eyes to Jesus as we close this message. Let's turn our eyes to our object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this book, and Lord, as we, as we go into this, uh, this, this book, I just feel like we're entering this, uh, this cave that was discovered with great treasure in it, and somebody turns on the light, and, and the, the, the jewels start to shimmer, and we start to see its beauty. Let us have that experience in this book of Ephesians, Lord, as, as this apostle of grace takes us deeper into this gospel, this gospel of grace. 
we turn our attention to Jesus. Lord, I specifically want to pray for those who, Lord, have not had that moment. They're not sure, they're unsure, they're not confident about their salvation. Maybe they've been religious. Maybe they haven't. Maybe they've just trusted in their own goodness. Or maybe they have trusted in their own uh, religious history or their family history in some way to, to, to give them points before you. Lord, we count those things as rubbish that we might find a righteousness, not our own, but that which is found through faith in Christ. Lord, give them grace to repent, to recognize their sin, that their record can never balance the scales and give grace to turn to you by faith and hope in Christ for salvation. Help them, Lord, to do that today. And Father, I pray for those now who are facing their own calling. Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Those who are facing their responsibilities in the home or in the church or in the community or in the marketplace, Lord, that they wouldn't feel overwhelmed in a way that they're discouraged or, or wake up just feeling dread at times, Lord, just this sense of impending doom or they're gonna fail. Or, Lord, I just pray that you, you just give them grace and spiritual power, spiritual energy, as it says also in the New Testament, to do the will of God for their lives and glorify you and show the people in their community the glory of God as the power of grace works in their lives and in their words. Bless them, I pray. And we thank you for this time together around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We gather every Sunday at the Clarksville area YMCA. For more information, please go to our website at redeeminghope.org.